Hello, I'm Rob Hirschfeld, CEO and co-founder of RackN and your host for the Cloud 2030 podcast. This episode is about eBPF, the kernel extensions that allow you to write small programs that uh, work inside of kernel space in a safe, sandboxed way that have a lot of applications and have been really creating a lot of hype inside of the Kubernetes community as a way to address networking shortfalls in Kubernetes. Our conversation actually starts much more general where we talk about the use cases for BPF and how it works uh, with our special guest, Bill Mulligan. And I know that you will learn a lot about BPEBPF and how it can enhance and improve your infrastructure operations environment. Enjoy. Bill, at least, is new, and I appreciate you coming in to talk about eBPF. One of the things we do with the the lunch is we we don't jump right to the the tech. Sometimes we do, but usually we we do a little bit of uh, warm up and and discussion first, as a um, just to give you some some idea on where we're going. But I would be happy since I know um, we are curious about eBPF, and I'm I'm glad you were able to join us. Um, if you don't mind giving a little background, right? My, the goal is this is a, a discussion format, but um, I don't think any of us are you know, saying we're experts. So we'd love to get some background on you and then hear about eBPF, if that's all right. Okay, sure. Um, I would say I have quite an interesting background in tech. In fact, I don't have any background in it at all. I actually got my undergrad degree in biochemistry, and then I got a master's degree in social science of the internet. Um, after that, I decided it was finally time to turn to tech. Uh, so I got a job at a small four-person startup that was doing a machine learning platform on Kubernetes. And it was the first time I'd ever run into the term Kubernetes, and I thought it was an amazing Greek island that we were going to go to. Unfortunately, it was this cloud-native technology that we were going to be working on and they sat me down back in like kubernetes like 1.8 and with my windows laptop and said set up a kubernetes cluster good luck <laughs> so eight hours later with a lot of buddy i set up my uh first windows or sorry my first kubernetes cluster and i guess it's been a wild ride through startups and cncs since then um so like any good startup, that one failed. Um, moved on to my second one. That was uh, Kubernetes or Ludza, um, which is kind of a like platform company, like consultancy. Um, did a little bit of sales and marketing there, but got more excited about working on the community. Then I headed off to CNCF to do a lot of the community programs, um, uh, especially around like growing the community internationally and to new audiences. And then I recently left CNCF and joined Isovalent to work on Cilium and eBPF, uh, working as a community pollinator, as we like to say. That is a great intro. I I remember Kubermatic. Yeah. Weren't they the Coop Spray? Did they do the Coop Spray work or is that different? They, I think they had a tool based off Cube Spray called Cube One. That's so, right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, it takes me takes we still we still play with Coop Spray. So, um, so I am eBPF is getting a ton of comments traction. There's you know, I, I'm curious you know how does it fit into Kubernetes? Um, why should why should people care? Yeah, so eBPF is very hype technology, and I guess maybe some people are wondering what it is. Um, eBPF is a general purpose, I would say, sandbox VM that allows you to modify and extend the functionality of the Linux kernel. So this has a lot of useful use cases because if you look at the Linux kernel development process right now, if you want to get something from a feature request into something you can actually use, it generally takes about five years. And that's a little bit too long, uh, even for an enterprise timeline. Um, and so if you want to do something faster or change functionality or add functionality, ABPF is a great way to be able to do that in a lot shorter time frame. Um, and so what it allows you to do is to hook into 
different events that are happening in the kernel and run programs based off of that. And it has a lot of benefits, both in terms of performance and security um, over like techniques that people use right now. So for example, another way to extend the functionality of the Linux kernel is to uh, load in a Linux, uh, uh, Linux kernel module. Um, however, that comes with some drawbacks because you don't know if it'll crash the kernel or not. You're going to have to reload all, all your kernels, which if you're running in a very large setting is not that effective. Um, eBPF allows you to bypass a lot of those things. Uh, eBPF programs are verified to run to completion. They won't crash, crash your kernel. You can also load them at runtime, so you don't need to reboot all of your kernels. Um, so you can add all these functionalities dynamically um, in a safe and efficient manner. Um, it also allows you to add new functionality in kernel space rather than user space. A lot of the slowdown in processing is this transition between transition between kernel space to user space and being able to skip that whole part and keep everything in kernel space uh, speeds processes up a lot. Um, and eBPF is actually used a lot in production today. Um, all face or meta traffic has been running through eBPF um, since I think 2017, so about five years in production. And today about 90% of Google's traffic is served uh, or is processed through eBPF too. So it's not a new kind of experimental technology. It's a very much, I would say, um, battle-tested technology that has significant performance and scale benefits. And that it makes sense to me that you would you would have Linux should have a a way to plug in you know sort of this you know uh, override kernel override sandbox. I I guess that that makes sense to me. That what I don't quite see is you know does that end up then being a per container like because Keith was joking about sidecars. Is this it, it doesn't <laughs> it doesn't feel like a container sidecar fit there's got to be some other additional mapping right no so ebpf programs are like part of the kernel so it's like a per host so all the programs function on a per host basis um okay yeah i guess that makes sense for replacing sidecar type of applications or use cases in kubernetes let me be sure i draw this out so I have a feature that I want, let's say it's a networking feature, then I want to apply that networking feature across a set of containers that's on a host. So I only need to have an eBPF application running on the host node itself. And then I get that feature across all of the containers running on it. What I guess we'll get to later on in, in discussion, especially as we look at this sidecar type of application for networking or uh, for service mesh, et cetera, I, I don't have this kind of external to the kernel or external to the, to the host OS set of things that I have to manage as part of my natural image for the host OS. Yeah, so the way that eBPF programs usually work, um, or a lot of them work, is a lot of people don't deal with the programs directly, because um, it'd be the same thing as uh, like developing Linux kernel code. They usually do it through some type of application. For instance, with Isovalent, they do it through Cilium. So Cilium is run as a daemon on every single node in your Kubernetes clusters. And then that uh, daemon then loads the eBPF programs onto the host and the eBPF programs direct the traffic um, for Cilium as the CNI. Um, does that make sense? I think the key, the key, go ahead, Keith. No, it makes sense. But what I'm, what I'm not grokking completely because I'm not a, developer and uh, and what i'm not completely getting is what kernel i guess uh, the so ebpf is still running in user space right no the programs are running in kernel space okay so that's the big thing so i get all the performance benefits and scale of running 
at the kernel level versus running yeah. user space in the user space. So it's universal to anything running on the OS. Yeah. I uh, I get the I inherit the kernel permissions, etc. Yeah. Does it does it have access to the user space data? Yeah. So what else that eBPF has is it has uh, essentially maps, which are these a way to share data between kernel space and user space. So there is the ability to share data there too. And so you can read it out into programs in user space. So this is, for instance, like Cilium as a program is running in user space, but is interacting with EVPF programs, which are running in kernel space and is able to share data um, through these maps. Uh, is there uh, how is does it have a mechanism to um, pr provide security, um, you know, particularly in a shared space like that? Um, yeah, so I, I guess there's a couple things. So, like, one is like the EVPF verifier. So, these programs are verified to run safely and completely or uh, to completion. The other thing is for EVPF programs, you need to have like privileged access um, to be able to run uh, run these programs on your machine. Um, it's the same thing, like you wouldn't run untrusted code in user space either. Um, so you need to have privileged access to, or like root access to uh, add or modify eBPF programs too. So there is a potential, potential security issue there. I think there's a potential security issue of like, if anyone has root on your system, there's a potential security issue, but I don't think eBPF adds any additional security issues above what you already have. <laughs> so if I'm thinking about core services on a Linux box or even any OS, and I want to harden my OS, you know, I choose what EBP, eBPF programs I want to run, period. As yeah. just as much as I would, you know, disable SSH yeah. or any other daemon that I don't yeah. want yeah. on my hardened OS. Well, I was thinking more in a multi multi tenant environment that it would. It doesn't sound like it would be appropriate in a multi tenant environment as it is currently configured. No, I would say it is like applicable in a multi tenant environment, but it, you also wouldn't let anyone and run any program in a multi-tenant environment to no that's exactly right that's my point <laughs> yeah or you you wouldn't let people load like linux kernel modules in a multi-tenant environment or an arbitrary user load those in a multi-tenant no. no but so here let me run the scenario and the reason why i'm interested in this um because as a telco we frequently run multi-tenant environments mm -hmm. all the time and we're very careful to make sure that, you know, our tenants, so it's it's kind of a two-way street. So we don't want to see, have access to our tenants' data or applications. Yeah. Right? And we don't want the tenants to see each other's data and applications. And also, we don't want to share the underlying infrastructure with them as much as possible. But, but you know, we do want some observability about what's going on in the environment. Um, so we so have to be I really guess, careful. <laughs> I guess the scenario, I, I would love to dive into that one a little bit more, because let's say that we have two layers. We have like the the control plane, the, the yeah. hypervisor that's running on a Linux box. And within that Linux box, the box itself is, is, the, is a multi-tenant box. I probably wouldn't have eBPF apps running on that on at that level, but the VMs on that box, the tenants, I would I don't I don't see the security risk and having a VM that is a uh, Kubernetes host running eBPF for the tenant environment. Right, but that's a specific tenant environment, right? It's it's you you're basically running the instance for the specific tenant. It's it's a virtual single ten tenant environment. Yeah, yeah. Okay. But you wouldn't do a cross tenant environment. So I'll give you an example of an environment. So this is a real environment. We have um, our box 
that's an edge. It's an edge box. It's a universal CP that has our environment, which is network, various network services of various sorts. It's got a hypervisor in there. It's currently most of those those um, applications are VM based, but uh, you know we we want to be able to support Kubernetes based uh, containers. We also have a tenant that's a that's a VM that is a Kubernetes environment that the that our our users have can put their own container based applications on, and we don't want to see those applications at all. We we need to have a strict um, because they're going to be putting in. Data they they may have data that we as a telco provider cannot see or should not see, and our tenants don't want us to see it. You know, like if there's a financial application or something, um, and we don't want to share information about our our tenants, our network stuff beyond what we expose to the customer. And it's kind of a complicated environment, but. You know. No, it's not too complicated. So from a perspective, there's kind of your stuff, your VMs on this, your box. Your box has a uh, hypervisor on it. Yep. Then you have some VMs on there that yep. you control. Then you have some VMs that you allow your customer, some VM. Do you allow your customer to, to deploy their own VM image? Or do you provide the VM image? We, for we provide the VM image that is a Kubernetes. It's the same. It's a Kubernetes environment. The VM itself is a Kubernetes environment. So I, I don't think we're using Kata containers, but it's similar to Kata containers. Yeah. Now, now within that context, uh, running your own eBPF applications in those VMs is no greater risk to the customer in terms of privacy than, than doing the observability in like in user space anyway, because you control those VMs. So whether it is done by eBPF or not, the customer trusts you to respect their privacy. Now, what, what EBF does give you, and, and you will have to, like if you do want to use it, it, it does have the benefits of like, Performance and and, uh, and and faster access to 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 what you want to observe. You just have to curate what you put in there and and ensure provide some assurance that the EBF EBF applications that you do use, if you choose to use them, does not infringe on the customer's privacy. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, but but we also want to have information about what's going on in the box. So so we want to be able to pull information about the CPU usage, the storage, memory, um, the the network traffic. You know, what's is it? You know, is the box overburdened? Is you know, are the traffic flows? You know, it you know for alarm you know monitoring purposes. Um, yeah. So. I don't really see the need for EBF in, in those kind of yeah, situations. Not. We're not uh, using uh, it today. I can tell you that. Like a really good uh, use case for EBPF in, in Kubernetes specifically is uh, auditing. Uh, like for example, the the, the Falco uh, controller it it runs its modules in in EBPF mode, which means that the kernel doesn't need to run any additional modules, so it is portable. Uh, and as a result, you get your auditing capabilities. Now, that's it's the, the greatest use case for that is single tenant scenario. You, you would not run EP, EP, an EPPF um, application like that in a multi tenant scenario because it has visibility into all of the data that, that goes in through. But um, so I, um, I'm, I'm still trying to figure out what the EBPF applications are doing that's, that's, that's of use. I mean, from, from that perspective, it, it's clear to me where, where we are in the stack at this point. And it, it's clear to me why you would want to do that type of offload in a high performance scenario. I, I'm still a little missed on, I'm still missing. Like, Common use cases. In, yeah. The use case in the C, like the CNI. Like, like what it's what it's addressing in that 
in the Kubernetes case where we have a container and it's you know it's running on the the host, and maybe I'm being too specific to Kubernetes, but that is. So I think that's some of the the challenge. Um, I would like to hear about even just outside the Kubernetes context, because as far as I'm aware, it's more so at the host level, and then obviously Kubernetes sitting on top of that is an application on the actual host itself. And so I think if we go back to literally eBPF outside of even the context of Kubernetes, I think that would be helpful. Sure, absolutely. So I just dropped a link to uh, a blog post that we recently did with a, let's say like the Google of the Czech Republic where they're using Cilium just for load balancing in front of their both Kubernetes and OpenStack clusters. So it's not exactly uh, important that it's connecting to either of those, but by switching from their traditional like IPVS based load balancer to like in XDP, which is like an eBPF based load balancer, they were able to reduce CPU usage by um, 72X and basically double their packets per second. So that's one use case where you're trying to process things right off the NIC um, that doesn't involve like it isn't specifically tied to Kubernetes. So if I'm understanding this correctly, is that this is the equivalent of something like, so when we think about something like DPDK and being able to use DPDK from Intel to do something similar, but I'm not using Intel NICs or I'm, I'm generic, I'm using a generic NIC, I'm using generic CPUs that's not, I'm using ARM and I want to get yeah. the same type of efficiencies. I can use an eBPF application to do this, or even if I'm using a smart NIC or something that I want to offload to hardware, uh, but I can't wait on this to get into the Unix kernel and user space is too slow and I can't take advantage of this. This is where I would use eBPF. So, you know, we could even, you know, think about this for other technologies such as CXL, NVMe, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And any kind of, so go ahead, Bill. Yeah, absolutely. So eBPF is really known for, I mean, it, the original use case was packet processing. So any things were, that you wanted right off the NIC without having to go through the TCP IP stack and like speed up that processing, it's really good for. So load balancing is one example. Things like DDoS, um, actually Cloudflare does most of, or does their DDoS mitigation um, with eBPF. Um, so other examples like that, where you're trying to speed up processing and the like processing of packets per second right off the NIC is the most important thing. So the same thing happens for storage. If I want to bypass the Linux subsystem for storage, I could, in theory, write an eBPF app that writes straight to the storage hardware and not go through the uh, storage subsystem on, of the kernel. Yes, um, that's... Coming. Um, uh, funny you should actually mention that. There's uh, So next week is eBPF Summit. Um, it's a two-day virtual conference if you're interested in attending. And we actually do have a talk about that, about um, speeding up uh, uh, hardware and storage. Um, and I can actually drop you a link to like the summit in case any of you are interested to even just like looking through um, the schedule to... Storage is kind of like a newer use case because it's a little bit more complicated, but um, it is being worked on too. And uh, it, uh, while you're doing that, uh, so as far as eBPF use case scenarios, is that any any situation where you see a where where you're dealing with extreme performance and you see a significant overhead from either the, the, the like the middle middleware layers, whether that's the storage system, the network system, et cetera, uh, bringing it closer to the, the kernel by using eBPF, will, that's, uh, that's a common scenario of. Yeah. yeah, and yeah, the other like really common scenario for eBPF um, or starting to be more common is what we like to call security observability. So mm -hmm. since you're able to observe everything that's going on in the kernel, you're able to uh, observe every single like uh, syscall that's happening within Linux kernel. And so you can look for malicious behavior easily 
there because a lot of times you know what your application should be doing and you can basically filter for processes that you aren't expecting um, to be happening. And so but does it handle does it handle um, processes that happen at the hardware level or firmware or can it? Uh, I don't I don't know the specific answer for that. Um, it's right now eBPF is about what's happening within the kernel. Okay, so, so it's, it yeah, it's, on, not, it's only touching the hardware in the sense that the kernel touches the hardware. Yeah, exactly. On, on the observability side, now that you mentioned it, Bill, um, it, it does also give you the ability to uh, to perform stack traces on, on, on any kind of uh, like again tracing and telemetry integration in your application without instrumenting your code. Yeah, exactly. So, so, um, so you don't need a specific library, for example, to, to do that kind of uh, observability. So as we think about distributed uh, or disaggregated networking and to a lesser extent disaggregated storage, which is, you know, kind of already exists, but disaggregated networking where, you know, we have something like Sonic and are we seeing like EB, EBPF making its way into Sonic so that we're getting kind of the same benefit, Linux kernel, but super slow process. And if I'm a hardware provider and I think I have some special sauce, I can put an eBPF app on my networking, yeah. on my white box to yeah. accelerate X, Y, or Z. I was going to the same place, Keith. That makes perfect sense because that's something we would obviously be very interested in. Yeah, I think we're starting to see a lot of people starting to implement their functionality using white boxes in eBPF because of the portability that eBPF provides. So wherever the customer is, the eBPF the eBPF program should work. So whether you're running in the cloud, like on-prem, if you're running on different types of boxes, as long as there's a Linux kernel that supports eBPF, which most modern Linux kernels do now, um, you'll be able to run your program. So for example, I know there's a new um, uh, 5G uh, load balancer um, for Kubernetes that's based on eBPF. Um, or there's other people that, yes, like are implementing their, I guess their, yeah, their special sauce in eBPF because they then can take it anywhere that they want. I guess it expands your customer base that you can provide your solution to. This isn't anything what I thought it was. This is, I I had no, I kept hearing the term and I just thought it was a replacement for sidecars. I didn't know how it replaced sidecars. This is not anything what I thought it was. That's yeah. what back up, Keith. Uh, that you were headed down the, the hype cycle of eBPF and Kubernetes. And it's more than that. Yeah, it is. It's way more than that. I I, I just I've, from KubeCon uh, in EU and because it kind of exploded at KubeCon EU this past uh, event, I saw it everywhere. And it's, it was mainly for security and CNI. And the discussion never went beyond Kubernetes. And this is way bigger yeah. than Kubernetes. There's a Kubernetes, yeah. there's applications in Kubernetes, but no, no, it's way bigger. Yeah, I mean, if it's at if it's at the kernel level, you can use it for anything. I mean, it doesn't it, it hypervisor? You know, if, if it can access the hypervisor, it can access the the Kubernetes platform. It can it can access the you know the support for the VMs. So, <laughs> yeah, what, what eBPF did did provide, like, or what what Kubernetes did provide for eBPF is a very uh, fertile ground for use cases. Yeah, Be because because the, the the kernel is by by, by nature uh, uh, isolated from, from the applications, uh, so it, it was always very difficult in Kubernetes situations to to run things uh, on on the node itself, uh, like agents etc. So eBPF bypasses that, that that problem by just letting you run stuff in the kernel. Yeah, so I get a lot of the cool observability that I got with my traditional hypervisors that I've lost in Kubernetes 
as a result. So all of the hooks from backup applications to et cetera, <laughs> I start to get some of that stuff back again. Storage replication, just a ton of stuff. Yeah. And I think that's what I was trying to say at the beginning is it, it is a general purpose compute engine within the Linux kernel. So it can basically speed up anything that you want to do in the kernel or hook into anything that's happening in the kernel. And that provides a massive range of functionalities. Um, and so, yeah, I think that's what why people are so exciting. Like, obviously you hear about like certain use cases first and a lot of people attach to those use cases. Like you were talking about like security and CNI, but it does open itself to a lot more possibilities. Um, and yes, I guess like Beth, to, to your point, like, yes, it is like a security concern if used incorrectly. Um, but that's the same thing. Like you wouldn't load untrusted Linux kernel modules into your kernels. You also wouldn't in general run untrusted code. It, it's like general security best practices. I, I don't think it's any worse than like any other things, as long as you have good like security, like security practices, I wouldn't be more <laughs> about EBPF than any other type I, of program. I, I actually see it as, um, you know, like any anything else, there's a need in say a containerized environment to be able to control egress for the containers. Um, yeah. And so if if you're able, because this is one of the things, and I'm, I'm curious, there is a, I think the Kubernetes angle is important because networking, you know, container networking is, has been sort of wide open and challenged. That's why we have all the sidecars. Yeah. Um, and so does, you know, are there sort of out of the box or coming out of the box solutions where you can address the shortcomings of container networking? Is that the idea? Yeah, I mean, that's what we're doing at like the Cilium project. Um, like one way that we like to say is we're making the kernel Kubernetes aware because I, I think that part of the problem right now is there's the Linux kernel and then there's Kubernetes and there's no way to connect them to each other. And with eBPF, we're now able to make the Linux kernel Kubernetes aware so it can we can connect things like process, uh, like containers um, and other things uh, like that. The other thing that we can do is we can like like speed up the networking. I think people, it's a well-known fact that like Kubernetes networking is extremely difficult because it was designed as a simple flat network, not with all these other complex yeah. use cases. And well, that's been a huge problem for the networking. You know, yeah, I mean the telecom yeah. just that's part of the reason why we have not done a huge amount with Kubernetes because none of yeah. those network functions really work. Yeah, and so I, I think the exciting thing with um, eBPF is that you can, I guess, it modify the networking in a way that makes it more friendly to alternative types of um, protocols. Like, actually, we're working right now with Bell Canada um, on doing stuff like uh, SRV6 and integrating like that into like traditional networks. Also, doing things like having a egress gateway. A lot of things, a lot of firewalls, right now rely on like static IPs and whitelists and stuff like that. And being able to do that in a Kubernetes context, I think is also quite powerful. And eBPF enables a lot of this um, in Kubernetes-based contexts. So being able to, I think, connect Kubernetes back to the real world of networking, let's say. <laughs> I guess given that, I mean, it almost seems to me like we're having... And e, you know the, the Kubernetes community is all excited about eBPF, but what they're really talking about is higher level CNI from that, yeah. that perspective. Yeah. Right? Um, yeah. Okay. Making the dream possible, right? So if I think about what CNI aimed to do, this makes it possible from an underlay perspective because it was not there was a not not enough visibility to compl or configurability underneath it. So I couldn't do the things that I actually needed to do via CNI directly. And now this makes it possible without exposing too much to the debt, to, to the, uh, to that uh, development, that, that platform team 
and people are out just just creating a bunch of snowflakes to get to the get to the vision of CNI. Yeah, uh, perhaps to, to to draw an analogy, what 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 EBAPF uh, does provide is a way to declaratively uh, have a crosscut among the the default isolation that Kubernetes namespaces provide. So in, in a sense, it, it eBPF is to Kubernetes what uh, aspect-oriented programming is what was to object-oriented programming. And, and, and that object-oriented programming focused on, again, isolating hierarchy, and then aspect-oriented programming said like, okay, let's look at the sideways and provide a single entry point to apply a change across all of the components, which is what EPPF lets you do. Yeah, yeah. It's, 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 and I think the, the challenge is, at least for me, is separating EBPF from a project like Cilium. Like Cilium uses EBPF to do, to achieve that ends, but it's not EBPF in itself isn't what Cilium does. It just, it's a enabler to your point. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I guess another thing I'd encourage you to check out to like find out some more use cases is on ebpf.io, there's like a landscape of different types of projects that are leveraging EBPF as a technology to achieve higher level goals. Like, I think, I mean, EBPF is just a technology. It can be used for good. It can be used for bad. It can be used for different types of purposes. I think what people should think about is like, what's the problem you're trying to solve? And I'd say EBPF probably makes it easier, faster, more efficient, and safer for you. Like, I mean, hard to make blanket statements. Obviously, everything depends. But EBPF is a, as they like to say, is a superpower for the Linux kernel. You're, you're not expecting that most people are going to write these applications, right? That, that I think, is EBPF enables you to write applications that get into kernel mode in a safe way. But, you know, I... Do you expect that there's going to be a lot of people hacking EP, eBPF applications, or is this going to be, you know, go look at look to a, a curated list um, for that? Yeah, I don't. The way we see it is like the same amount of people that are going to be writing Linux kernel code or Linux kernel modules are going to be the people that are writing eBPF programs, and you can probably look right now and see how many people you have on staff. Um, what we are going to see is people leveraging other project, higher level projects to achieve certain goals. So whether that's you're trying to do <clears throat> something with networking and Cilium, or you're trying to do something with security and Tetragon, I think people are going to be leveraging pro like higher level projects that are using eBPF as the underlying technology. But in terms of actually writing eBPF programs, I, I don't think a lot of people are going to want to, need to, or even have to do that. There's a lot of great projects out there. Yeah, I, I guess the other question is around life cycle. So obviously we've decoupled the kernel from eBPF from the kernel and these features. How are people maintaining images uh, as their kernel, you know, as I, I get a new kernel uh, that, you know, the, my eBPF programs need to be validated against that kernel, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm, 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 uh, I'm adding this le level of middleware between my applications and the kernel, and I need to maintain both. No. So there is a lot of discussion because obviously interoperability is very important. Like the Linux kernel moves very quickly and it wouldn't be that great of a technology if it broke with every single change in the Linux kernel. Um, and the way that they're working on that right now, and this is like very upstream, like deep in the weeds of like the Linux kernel is stuff around um, like basically headers for like which kernel that you're using. So it's saying I'm using this kernel and then the eBPF is able to process like it knows what's available in which kernels and how to process certain things. So it's 
they have this thing called compile once run everywhere. Um, so it's able to take an eBPF program, look at which kernel it's running on and modify it so that it runs correctly on that kernel. That, that's a, that's a, I mean, they didn't make that up. That's a standard thing that's been around for years. <laughs> Rob's yeah. nodding his head there. <laughs> yeah. I, there's a, vi there's a vision of it. And then there's <laughs> you know, what it, what it takes to make things really yeah. Uh, portable. And and I, I, you know, one of my big battle scars is there's port. You know, there, the the value of portability um, can be overrated. Portability is really really important, but it can be very hard to achieve. So there's no of you know if you can hit most things yeah. or you can deal with it in a reasonable way. It's it's a big yeah. Most thing. most of my core community doesn't care about portability. They care support care about supportability. So if they can. Yeah. Uh, if you know VMware, Red Hat, or whomever kind of took care of this for me, I really wouldn't care. That that's uh, I just I don't care, and I wouldn't. For me, the the Cerulean that requires a version of eBPF, which requires a version of uh, the Linux kernel, was something that I paid my distro company to worry about, and I do the rest of the stuff. Yeah, it's. I, I agree with you, Keith, and this is actually one of our struggles because I think portability has a degree of value because people don't want to keep writing. It's not that you can change it yourself; it's that you can be part of a community. So I, I, this is this is right when when you look at you know I don't see people having the skill sets to write eBPF plugins. So if you have one that that you can use, then that's that's really valuable. And the portability. <clears throat> Comes the community value. I, I think portability, the, the value is going to depend upon who's the audience. So, mm -hmm. you know, as an end user, you know, as a telco that buys a bunch of stuff, portability is probably a less of a priority because, you know, we pick some platform and we buy, you know, thousands of them. So it's not, you know, and, and we don't change platforms very often. Um, however, our, you know, Dell, would probably be much more interested in portability because as, as its hardware changes over time and event and, and a company that, <clears throat> that does supports multiple universal CP platforms, you know, if they um, is going to be extremely interested in portability. Yeah. And in terms of portability, it's, it's really just which version of the Linux kernel are you running on is the only question that eBPF is asking. It's not really tied to anything else. Yeah. Is, but, but are the programs that people write, I mean, is there port, is there, is there, I mean, there's definitely an abstraction. So you have a container that you can make those programs work in. Uh, you know, do we still have to worry about, um, certain you know classes of networking or storage or um like how there's there's there an abstract i guess there is a degree of abstraction in that so ebpf programs are like like JIT compiled and run in the kernel and they're only interacting with things in the kernel so it depends on it just it it's only dependent on things that are happening in the kernel. It, it doesn't really care about all these other things. Those other things interact with the kernel and then what's happening in the kernel is what eBPF interacts with. To, to, to do a, a comparison, um, if you bundle or if your application requires a kernel module, every time you update the kernel, you need to recompile your, your module on the system and have it pre-compiled. So if it, and, and if you don't have it available, then it will not run on the system, which is, for example, difficult when the kernel is not something that you yourself control, like in EKS and, or GKE, et cetera, where the, the cloud provider gives you the kernel. With eBPF, because it is JIT compiled, it, it will just run on a new kernel as long as the the interface stays the same. Yeah, 
Yeah, I'm, I'm looking at some of these links. Which lets you behaviors. This yeah. insolvent uh, link is really, I was actually, I was trying to figure out an HA use case for eBPF and uh, with Kubernetes. And there's one here already for egress, uh, for egress gateway. That's a pretty cool link. I'm going to check that out. Uh, because I'm, anytime you're thinking about speeding up IO, you can now think about distributed uh, HA. Uh, around state of either uh, memory, et cetera, et cetera, but you just need super fast I.O. And if you can't do that at the kernel level, it's almost impossible to achieve at the user level without something like external storage, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, and I think really running things in the kernel, people don't realize how much faster that can make things. Like, <laughs> like, uh, I think most people, yeah, most developers know that. But you know, there's only so much you can run in the kernel, right? Yeah, I think I think it's not just developers. As we, I got into this really interesting debate about whether or not the concept of a platform engineer exists. And when I when I go to KubeCon, uh, I talk to at the lunch table. I talk to a ton of platform developers or engineers, like people who are making the Kubernetes experience better for people writing application business logic. And they're all in this of just how do I make Kubernetes invisible? And this type of thing is one of those, seems like it's it's candy for the platform engineer, which people debate doesn't exist. You know, uh, you know, my world is my world. I, I talk to the people I talk to, maybe. I, I was going to say a platform. I mean, there, there used to be an operating system engineer. I think a platform engineer is not that different from that. I mean, there's that concept is uh, definitely still around. Somebody has to write the platform. Somebody has to write the operating systems. Yeah, I think there's so much white space for the platform. Uh, that you have to that you it's, it's where there isn't an option of buying a lot of the you can't buy a great Kubernetes experience yet for most developers OpenShift is a thing but it doesn't fulfill all the gaps so you need someone to uh, sh- shim the rest of the environment for you so yeah. To me, this is I, there's a link here with the EBPF discussion because we're looking for abstractions, right? The, the the benefit here is that we're able to add an abstraction in the kernel that might streamline some standardized operation. And, and if that's what it feels like we keep coming back to networking or storage or observability or probing um, or building, right, right? There's specific cases where we we don't if we build something in the kernel or actually if we build something in the in the hosts then we can build a useful abstraction on top of it um and the the challenge is that the kernel is too slow for us to get the support we need in a performant way to really empower those abstractions and so i'm thinking back to like openstack networking which the more complex networking was always so slow and created a whole bunch, you know, so you had to offload and then that made you straight back into hardware proprietary stuff. Now we're saying, look, I have a way that I can make some tweaks into the networking stack to empower Kubernetes or make the networking stack aware of Kubernetes, which is just as important. And then that abstraction makes Kubernetes more powerful. Yeah, sorry. It's not just abstraction. It's also about keeping the system support functions dry. Mm-hmm. Like in, instead of having to put a sidecar on every single pod of a particular application, you run your EPVF module and it, and it applies against all of those pods. Oh, and because it's Kubernetes aware, it can make the appropriate adjustments on a per, um, per pod basis, which it, you can't do without EPVF. Mm-hmm. That's why people. That's why people are getting very excited. Yeah, which is why I was saying I was trying to get that with with the comparison to abstract written pro, uh, programming is that it does a cross cut uh, across all of the uh, all of the the components that it, it interacts with. So instead of doing a one to one mapping 
for for each of the components that you need that you need to work with. You you just have you one eBPF module that applies uniformly to all of them. Yes, that's so true. It's a good much easier to audit, much easier to track, uh, much reducing complexity by loads. And reducing uh, workload too for the uh, the cloud operators. Well, and then the host and the host and the host management um, team or tooling can can then audit and override. Exactly. It's, it's a logical control point which we've lost, which we had lost with all the cell sidecars. Okay. Yes. Huh. Well, yeah. to be fair, we. we probably wouldn't have gotten here without the sidecars in the first place. Like we needed the sidecars to highlight what we were missing. Yeah. Maybe. Right. And the, this just adds the, the ability to uh, control security a hell of a lot more. Uh, yeah. You're responsible for it because if you write the, the module, but it's one module you know, like he, like Bill said, it's right once, run everywhere. This is cool. Bill, thank you for joining us. Um, we appreciate the the insights and, and helping backstop the conversation uh, for us. So. Yeah, so, of course. Hopefully what I sent was helpful to you and it's a little bit informative. So it, it was, it's interesting. Sometimes you're just, you know, so deep in the hole that you forget like how to talk to um, <laughs> <laughs> that aren't in the weeds. <laughs> this is also actually very fun for me too. Good. So. so, so I expect Rancher to jump on this like uh, white on rice. <laughs> yeah, they actually already leveraged psyllium. So, <laughs> yep. <laughs> right place, right time. Congratulations on the psyllium stuff. That's excellent. Yeah, thank you. Okay. Good stuff. And uh, Thank you. I think Thank a significant so number of people here will be at KubeCon, so okay. I'll bump into cool. each other in the halls. Yeah, definitely. I'm giving three talks, so feel free to. <laughs> Goodness. All right, I will. I will. I will. I will haunt you. <laughs> Learn more about this. Cool. Thank you. All right, everybody. Appreciate the time and the conversation. Wow, what a great conversation about a really complex topic. The takeaways on eBPF are really impressive. Uh, whether you're into Kubernetes or looking into operations more generally, the potential to find ways to improve performance and security in your infrastructure using eBPF are pretty significant. Uh, if this was helpful, please come in. Uh, we want to hear your voice, get your questions, your expertise, all important in these discussions you can join us at the 2030.cloud. I'll see you there. Thank you for listening to the Cloud 2030 podcast. It is sponsored by RackN, where we are really working to build a community of people who are using and thinking about infrastructure differently, because that's what RackN does. We write software that helps put uh, operators back in control of distributed infrastructure, really thinking about how things should be run and building software that makes that possible. If this is interesting to you, uh, please try out the software. We would love to get your opinion and, and, and hear how you think this could transform infrastructure more broadly, or just keep enjoying the podcast and coming to the uh, discussions and you know laying out your thoughts and how you see the future unfolding. It's all part of building a better infrastructure operations community. Thank you.